He had served in her for many years, and he loved her even more than his first command. It was not so much as a man of war, a fighting machine, that he loved her, for even when he first set foot aboard so long ago, neither her size nor her force had been in any way remarkable. And now that the war had been going on for twenty years and more, now that the usual frigate carried thirty-eight or thirty-six eighteen-pounders and gauged a thousand tons, the surprise with her twenty-eight nine-pounders and her less than six hundred tons had been left far behind. In fact, she and the rest of her class had been sold out of the service, or broken up, and not one remained in commission, although both French and American yards were building fast, shockingly fast. No, it was primarily as a ship that Jack loved her, a fast, eminently responsive ship that, well handled, could outsail any square-rigged vessel he had ever seen, above all, on a bowline. She had also repaired his shattered fortunes when they were both out of the navy. Himself struck off the list, and she sold at the block, and he sailed her as a letter of mark. Furthermore, he was now her owner as well as her captain, for Stephen Matcherin, the frigate surgeon, who bought her when she was put up for sale, had recently agreed to let him have her. And what was of even greater importance, both man and ship were back in the navy. Jack Aubrey, reinstated after an exceptionally brilliant cutting-out expedition and after his election to Parliament, and the frigate as His Majesty's hired vessel surprise. Not quite a full reinstatement for her, but near enough for present happiness. Her first task in this particular voyage had been to carry Aubrey and Maturin, who was an intelligence agent as well as a medical man, to the west coast of South America there to frustrate French attempts at forming an alliance with the Peruvians and Chileans who led the movement for independence from Spain, and to transfer their affections to England. Yet since Spain was then at least nominally allied to Great Britain, the enterprise had to be carried out under the cover of privateering, of attacking United States South Sea whalers and merchantmen, and any French vessels she might chance to meet in the East Pacific. This plan had been betrayed by a highly placed, a very highly placed, but as yet unidentified, traitor in Whitehall, and it had had to be postponed. Aubrey and Maturin going off on quite a different mission in the South China Sea, eventually keeping a discreet rendezvous with the surprise on the other side of the world at the mouth of the Salibabu Passage, the surprise in the meantime having been commanded by Tom Pullings, Jack's first lieutenant, and manned, of course, by her old privateering crew. Here they sent her more recent prizes away for Canton under the escort of the Nutmeg of Consolation, a charming little post-ship lent to Captain Aubrey by the Lieutenant-Governor of Java, and so proceeded to New South Wales, to Sydney Cove itself, where Jack hoped to have his stores renewed and several important repairs carried out, and where Stephen Maturin hoped to see the natural wonders of the Antipodes, particularly the duck-billed platypus. Unfortunately, the governor was away, and Jack's hopes were disappointed because of the ill-will of the colonial officials, and the fulfilment of Stevens very nearly killed him, for the outraged platypus, seized in the midst of his courting display, plunged both poison spurs deep into the incautious arm. It was an unhappy visit to an unhappy, desolate land. But now the odious penal shores had sunk in the west. Now the horizon ran clean round the sky, and Jack was in his old world again, aboard his own beloved ship.
Stephen had recovered from his distressing state. The bluish-leaden color of his face had returned to its usual pale yellow, and he could now be heard playing his cello in the cabin, a remarkably happy piece he had composed for the birth of his daughter. Jack smiled. He was very deeply attached to his friend. But after a couple of bars, he said, Why Stephen should be so pleased with a baby, I cannot tell. He was born to be a bachelor. No notion of domestic comforts, family life, quite unsuited for marriage, above all for marriage with Diana, a dashing, brilliant creature to be sure, a fine horsewoman and a capital hand at billiards and whist, but uh, something of a rake, quite often shows her wine. In any case, quite improper for Stephen, has nothing to say to books, much more concerned with breeding horses. Yet between them they've produced this baby, and a girl at that. He longed for a daughter, but I wish she may not prove a platypus to him. And he might have added some considerations on marriage, so often unsatisfactory, had not Davidge's voice called out, Every rope and end! cutting the thread of his thought. Every rope and end! The cry was automatic, perfunctory, and superfluous, for having put the ship about, with rather more conversation than was usual in a regular man of war, but even more neatly than in most, the surprises were rapidly coiling down the running rigging, braces, and bowlines, just as they had done thousands of times. Yet without the cry, Something would have been missing, some minute part of that naval ritual which did so uphold seagoing life. Seagoing life, none better, reflected Jack, and certainly at this point he had something like the cream of it, with a good, tolerably well-found ship, for the returning governor had done all he could in the few days left, an excellent crew of former Royal Navy hands, privateersmen and smugglers, professional from clue to earring with his course set for Easter Island and many thousand miles of blue water sailing before him. Above all, there was his restoration to the list, and though the surprise was no longer in the full sense, a king's ship, both her future as a yacht and his as a sea officer, were as nearly assured as anything could be on such a fickle element. In all likelihood, he would be offered a command as soon as he came home, not a frigate, alas, since he was now so senior, but probably a ship of the line. Possibly a small detached squadron, as Commodore. In any event, a flag, being a matter of seniority and survival rather than merit, was not so very far distant, and the fact that he was Member of Parliament for Millport, a rotten borough in the gift of his cousin Edward, meant that independently of his deserts this flag would almost certainly be hoisted at sea, for Rotten Borough or not, 